Hello and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. My name is Brad Warner. I am your host. I am the author of The Other Side of Nothing, Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, There Is No God and He Is Always With You, Don't Be a Jerk, It Came From Beyond Zen, and many other fine books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. And as always, this podcast is sponsored solely by your donations, and if you'd like to donate to support this podcast, you can go to the URL hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts, and that's where I get most of my money from. But as always, this is offered for free, so you don't got to donate if you don't want to donate. All right, and sitting with me today is my little nephew, Ben Goldman. He's my little nephew, right? What's up, guys? Ben Goldman here. I also have some social medias. You can check them out at Animal Talk Vegas on Instagram, at Animal Talk Vegas on TikTok, and YouTube.com slash Animal Talk Vegas on YouTube. And I'm happy to be joining my amazing, brilliant Uncle Brad today. See, when I introduce him as as my nephew, people kind of imagine a five-year-old kid sometimes, but he's, what did you just turn 33? I just turned 33. Yep, 33 this year. So So, uh, Ben was interested in talking about God in Buddhism, so I thought that would be our topic. So I think what I will do for the benefit of Ben and for the benefit of the listeners out there is try to do a quick tutorial about uh, how deities and gods and things work in Buddhism, which is a very difficult subject to explain because it's so completely unlike it works in monotheistic Abrahamic religions like Judaism, Buddhism, and Christianity. So that's... That so that's how we'll jump off uh, and and uh, for the information of our listeners, uh, uh, Ben grew up in a what, what would you say multi-denominational household, a Jewish father and a Christian mother. Christian mother. That was my my sister being the Christian half and his father being um, the Jewish half. So. Let's see if we can explain how this works out. And I'm not going to get it all in. And I, I brought a copy, which you can't see because we're doing an audio podcast today, but uh, my book, There Is No God and He Is Always With You, is the book I, I wrote, uh, what, when did this come out, 2012 or something? And, that, and it's the book in which I tried to explain, 2013 is when this came out, and it's the book in which I tried to explain at least my take on the whole idea of how God fits into the Buddhist picture. And my take on it... it there are a lot of people who present Buddhism as a kind of atheistic religion. In fact, when I first started looking into Buddhism, that's one of the first things I heard about it. And it's not really. My first teacher, <coughs> excuse me, liked to describe Buddhism as not being atheistic, but being non-theistic. It's a religion in which the the category of God is kind of absent. We don't really talk in terms of God. But to say that it's atheistic or to say that there's no place for God in Buddhism, I think is wrong because you, there, you can talk about something very much like God in Buddhism. And that's kind of what I wrote this whole book to try to explain. And it took me how many pages? 188 pages. It's actually one of my shorter books. So, 
I managed to try to explain that, and I'm, now I'm going to try to explain it in about two and a half minutes, and so let's see what I can do. So having said that, uh, what I was talking with Ben about, and, and the point, what well, I'll, I'll try to jump into it, is that the Hindu gods sort of uh, do appear in some of the Buddhist texts, te- excuse me, texts, and the one Hindu god who seems to appear with the most frequency, at least as far as I can remember in in the text that I've read, is Indra. And so I'm going to read to you the description of Indra that appears in my teacher uh, Nishijima Roshi's, uh, what do we call this, the glossary in the back of volume one of Shobo Genzo. So this is his definition of Indra, which he probably didn't even come up with himself. This probably comes up, he probably came up with this somewhere. Oh, from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of uh, Sanskrit, I think, is uh, if I read this citation right. Anyway, oh no, no, sorry, that's where he gets chakra. Anyway, let's just read it. Okay. Uh, Indra, the god of the atmosphere and sky, the Indian Jupiter Pluvius, Jupiter Pluvius, or Lord of Rain, and then in parentheses, who in Vedic mythology reigns over the deity of the intermediate region or atmosphere. He fights against and conquers with his thunderbolt, or Vajra, the demons of darkness and is in general a symbol of generous heroism. Indra was not originally lord of the gods of the sky, but his deeds were most useful to mankind, and he was therefore addressed in prayers and hymns more than any other deity. In the later mythology, Indra is subordinated to the triad of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, but remained the chief of all other deities in the popular mind. So, He's not exactly Jehovah, you know, that kind of position of God. But he is in the Hindu mythology of having loads and loads of gods, and especially in Buddha's time when it hadn't been quite as solidified, this is 2,500 years ago, as it is today, he was probably the biggest deal god uh, in the time that Buddhism first started getting its, you know, getting its thing together. I think these days probably more Hindus would be interested in Vishnu than Indra, but, you know, we'll leave that alone for now. Let's just say Indra was like the biggest of all the gods. So the the place that Indra appears uh, most prominently in early Buddhism that I remember is in the story of Buddha's enlightenment. So Buddha gets enlightened. He he meditates under a tree for uh, 40 days and 40 nights or something like that, uh, a, a while. And he has this profound experience of enlightenment where he understands life, the universe, and everything. And at first he thinks, well, he's been studying with other spiritual teachers in other prominent traditions in India. And he's kind of gotten what they have to say. But what he has understood with his profound experience of enlightenment is beyond what he has been taught by these other teachers. And he figures nobody's going to get it. So he's just going to keep it to himself. He doesn't 
he's just going to enjoy his enlightenment and live his life, and it's, he's going to be happy with what he's gotten, and he's not going to teach. And apparently he, you know, lives like this for a little while, I don't know how long, and then the god Indra appears before him and says, no, Buddha, you got to teach the people about this, and convinces the Buddha to go out and teach the people <laughs> what he has learned with his great enlightenment. So that's where the god Indra appears there. Uh, you had something to, to ask? Yeah, I'm curious. So was there a reason that the, the, uh, the gods, like Indra himself, couldn't pass this information on to humans and they had to ask Buddha? Yeah, and that's what I kind of wanted to get into because that that is kind of the subject of some of the quotes that I brought with me to, to talk about. Because in Buddhism, the gods are seen as kind of subordinate to Buddha. So Buddha is a human being, and and different sects of Buddhism will argue about this. So I'm talking from Zen Buddhist kind of the way Zen Buddhists see it. So in in Zen Buddhist idea, idea way of understanding things, uh, the Buddha is not a supernatural being or a deity. He's a human being who has understood something profound. But a human being who has understood something as profound as what the Buddha understood, and as it, which is also available to any other human being, is actually more, is actually greater than a god. Uh, and in, in many ways, in, in terms of a depth of understanding, like even the gods can't understand things to the depth that a human being who has the proper understanding can understand. So <clears throat> that's why I brought these quotes to give examples of that. So maybe, maybe after, maybe after I give these quotes, then we can see if we can have a, some kind of discussion. Because Okay. <laughs> These are some quotations from Shobogenzo in which Indra appears, because I found a bunch of them. I found more than I thought I would. I just used my uh, a PDF thingy, Mabob, to look up Indra in Shobogenzo. And the first time he appears is in Dogen's retelling of the Heart Sutra. And and here's one uh, that this this appears in Ma, Makahanya Haramitsu, the, the Dogen's essay on the Heart Sutra. The god Indra asked the venerable monk Subhuti, so Subhuti would be one of Buddha's original followers, virtuous one. So Indra is referring to one of Buddha's monks as virtuous one. So he's already giving an honorific to one of Buddha's monks. So Indra is already impressed because this guy is a Buddhist monk. When Bodhisattva Mahasattva, so there's Buddhist practitioners, want to research the profound Prajnaparamita, want to do a meditation practice, uh, how should, should they research it? Uh, Subhuti, the, the monk, reply, replies Kausika, which is just a way of saying Indra. So Indra. When Bodhisattva Mahasattvas want to research the profound Prajnaparamita, they should research it as space. And then the conversation goes on. But the the point, and, and it goes on for a, a couple of paragraphs, but the point here is that Indra is asking a Buddhist monk how to practice meditation. So that's that's the position a god gets in, in Buddhism. And kind of the other quotes I have kind of just re-emphasize that point, but I'll just give you a few others. There, this is from an essay called Raihai Tokuzui, which is 
prostrating to that which has attained the marrow, which is, I, I wrote about this in my book, uh, which book is called? Don't Be a Jerk. And this is the, this is, I called this the women's lib chapter. This is the chapter in which Dogen goes on a huge rant against anybody who thinks that women are inferior as Buddhist practitioners. And in part of this rant, he says, uh, the Buddha's disciples, whether bodhisattvas, shravakas, uh, have the following ranks. And then he gives all the ranks of Buddhist uh, practitioners. First, bhikshu, second, bhikshuni. So that's a, a male monk, a female monk. Upasaka, upasika. I don't forget what the difference is between upasaka and a bhikshuni. doesn't matter. These ranks are recognized both in the heavens above and in the human world, and they have long been heard. This being so, those who rank second among Buddhist disciples are superior to sacred wheel-rolling wheel kings and superior to Indra. So uh, any Buddhist monk is superior to Indra. That's what Dogen is saying. Um, and here's another one from an essay called Keisai Sanshiki, the voices of the river valley and forms of the mountains. Moreover, there have been examples since ancient times of the god Indra coming to test a practitioner's resolve or of demons, it, it, Mara Papias, it doesn't matter, that's a kind of demon, coming to hinder a practitioner's training. These things always happened when the practitioner had not got rid of the will to fame and gain, when the spirit of great benevolence and great compassion is profound, and when the vow to widely save beings is mature, these hindrances do not occur. So he's basically saying that if you are a meditation practitioner and God appears before you, your meditation practice is no good. It means you just have too much of a desire for fame and profit. So, so that's where, that's another thing about God. I, I think that's probably, we don't really need to give these other quotes, but that's, that's, that's where God's figure into the picture. Uh, just out of curiosity, what is the second wheel rolling king? Oh God, you know, I know, I don't even remember. These are, there, there are various sort of mythological beings that appear in Buddhist text. But the wheel-rolling kings are some kind of great celestial something or other. I've forgotten exactly what so they are. Gods too, they're, they're, a kind of, they're a kind of god or, okay. or, or <clears throat> special sort of high being. But the basic idea is Buddhism accepts this idea of there being higher levels uh, for want of a better word, than the human world. So that there are, there are these levels in which there are deities and gods and, and things like that, and they might have bodies that are more stable than ours and that live for thousands of years and that are um, healthier than ours and so on and so forth. But it is actually considered by Buddhists to be better to be born as a human being because if you're born in one of those higher realms, everything is so nice that you never arouse the desire to practice and uh, become enlightened. So you just end up... So even the gods die. <clears throat> so the gods may live a thousand or a million or a billion or who knows how long they live 
there's also the the other thing I wanted to bring up is the thing I was uh, Ben was getting annoyed at me because I was spending a lot of time looking through my book There Is No God and He Is Always With You, and I had this story that I found when I was researching this book and I I couldn't find it again but it's somewhere in this book, uh, and it's an old Buddhist story. The idea being that the universe goes in cycles. Not not every Buddhist necessarily believes this, but there's an idea that the universe goes in cycles of creation and destruction. So the whole universe gets created and everything lives and lives its life and everything happens. And then after bazillions of years, everything gets destroyed and then it starts over again. When it starts over again, there's always one being, one living being, who's the first being to be born because of karma or whatever. So that first living being, who's the first thing to be born in the next cycle of the universe, starts watching the other living beings getting born, other things that get born. And he thinks that he is creating them. So he, this first living being, decides that he is God. And this old Buddhist story makes fun of this first living being for being so stupid as to think that he is God just because he was the first one, because he had the karmic, you know, whatever, to be the firstborn of all living beings. But he's not God. He's just the first one to be born. So that, so if if a Buddhist who believed in that story were to come across the story of Genesis, they'd go, oh, he's just the guy who was the first one who was born in that cycle of the universe. He didn't create anything. So there's where God fits into the picture. Okay. So I, can a God actually achieve enlightenment then? Is that a thing? Because I, I guess you're explaining that whole story where Indra asks the Buddhist monk and Buddha about that. So I'm just curious, is it... Does is it possible for a god to learn to meditate from a Buddhist monk or from Buddha and then achieve enlightenment themselves, since they are living beings that have mortal bodies and all that? I don't know. It's a good question because uh, you know, in one part of the tradition would say no, uh, but then you have you have that thing I just read you where Indra asks Subhuti how to practice. So that would, that would imply that if he asked him how to practice, then Indra could practice. And then I guess he could practice. Yeah, I, I suppose he could. But then, then again, the question is sort of irrelevant unless you are a God, you know, what, what I think of when I think of that is I kind of think of, Oh, you know, like very rich people, you know, or, or people who are really well off who don't, who don't have any reason to to want to practice or want to get, you know, want to make something of themselves sort of spiritually because things are too too great yeah. for them. They often kind of don't have any interest in that. They feel blessed, I guess, already. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, a thing. But I, I don't know. I mean, George Harrison was very interested in spirituality. But then again, if you're George Harrison, you don't know who who to trust. Sorry, this is sort of a sidelight. But then, you know, every any guru who comes to George Harrison, if I'm George Harrison, I'm going to be suspicious of anybody who comes and tries to guruize me because I'm going to think, oh, he wants my George Harrison money. I guess Siddhartha kind of explored the same thing too, didn't he? As like a as a person born with significant privilege, so maybe that's reflective of the notion that a, of a god wanting to seek out enlightenment. It could be, yeah. I, I imagine, 
Yeah, I, I don't know what the circumstances of, of his life were if he had that kind of, if people would have been a, been like, oh, let me teach Siddhartha because he's a he's a rich guy's son and, and maybe I can get somewhere by doing that. But maybe that would have been an issue for him, even practicing. Uh, I don't know. That's a good point. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. So, uh, so here's another one then. If uh, with this realm of gods that exists, and I assume the, the the notion of enlightenment is a is an understanding of all things. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that within the progression to achieving enlightenment, a human has to understand what a god understands and feels already? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I. I mean, there is a enlightenment is supposed to be a what is enlightenment? I mean, people don't it's not really explained exactly what it is, you know, and whether and how this relates to gods and things. My teacher, Nishijima Roshi, used to always say that any of these references to gods and things were just references to different psychological states and stuff. And so you could you could look at it that way and say that it's a profound understanding of all the sort of states that are available to a human being. But what I would say is that there are probably states, what we roughly or loosely term psychological states that are available to a human being that are probably beyond anything you would normally think of as being available to a human being that might be seem like godlike. I mean, there are things that people get into in you know, drug hallucinations that seem to be beyond what you would normally get into as a human being. I don't know. Just taking some, like, ayahuasca to achieve instant enlightenment kind of situation? Yeah, I don't know if you achieve instant enlightenment with ayahuasca, though. That's, uh... I don't know. Aaron Rodgers seems pretty smart to me, so, you know, you never... Aaron Rodgers and uh, Joe Rogan, they all, they just pop Popping ayahuasca all the time, from what I understand. So yeah, and they get all enlightened and stuff. Maybe that's the wasn't Buddha bald? Joe Rogan's bald. That's a, that's a real. That's a link right there. That's a real thing. We should we should really jump into. That. I think I think it proves I think it proves they were enlightened and that they were bald. Well, yeah, I don't know that that the drug kind of thing. I mean, you can get. You can get into to, uh, interesting psychological states with drugs, but then you, you kind of, once the drug wears off, the state wears off. You know, and, and the difference between that and, and something you get with meditation is, uh, well, the, there are meditative states that come and go too, but there's, there's um, the access to them isn't through a chemical. Okay. That, that's, that's the difference. It, it's the... Um, I think what you get into with a meditation is more the ability to notice states that are ongoing all the time. I mean, my my feeling is that there's there's a wide range of things that are going on in any moment that you're alive, and a meditation practice makes those that wide range of states more accessible. So that you don't necessarily need to take a drug to access them. Okay, so I think drugs are more like an illusory state then, not a real state of mind. Whereas the state you reach with meditation is like a truer state of understanding and mind. You know, I wonder if it's, it's. I don't know if I'd put it exactly that way. I think that the problem for me personally with the drug-induced states. You know, I've had 
LSD and things like that. Well, things like that. I've had LSD and mushrooms, you know, my two hallucinatory drugs I've ever had. And the problem was that it, it, it just sent you off into something without any sort of preparation for what you were going to get into. You know, it kind of threw you into this state very quickly. And then as soon as the chemical wears off, it pulls you out of it. So you don't, you don't know what you're going to get into, and then you're into it. And then you're into it for as long as it takes the chemicals to have an effect, and then you're out of it, you know? So there was, it, it was kind of an uncontrolled sort of experience. And so there was no way to understand what was going on. There's no way to appreciate or understand what was going on. So as someone who has both done these hallucinogenic drugs and also done a significant amount of meditation, I'm sure achieved, you know, a decent understanding through it. You obviously, you know, have put a lot of time and effort into it. So I imagine you've achieved that. Would you say that there's any similarity between the states achieved in meditation and the states achieved through the drugs? And is it only the only difference that you're being thrown into one without preparation? Or are they just wildly different states of mind? It's an interesting question. I, I would I wouldn't say it's in, in uh, there is some similarity, but I have to be careful because I whenever I'm whenever I talk about this stuff, my my concern is, and maybe I maybe I'm just overly concerned. I, I'm I'm concerned. I don't want to like encourage anybody to do those kind of drugs because it's you know I I felt like I was encouraged to do them when I was younger, by by you know, reading Ram Das and things like that and going, oh boy, he, he did LSD and had enlightenment. It, it'll be great. And so I, I don't want to encourage anybody, but okay. Having said that, yeah, there's some kind of similarity. The, the, the metaphor that I came up with years ago, and I'll try it out on you and see where it is and where it goes. It was kind of like, if you say you were interested in going to Nepal and but the way somebody's going to go take you to Nepal is they they blindfold you and drag you off to to Nepal and they dump you out in Nepal and they leave you there for for 5 hours in some random place in Nepal and then after 5 hours they come and grab you and blindfold you again and take you back home okay. that's to me what the drug experience is is like like you, you're just like there and you've got no idea and everything smells weird and looks weird and you don't know who anybody is or what the language is or, or anything. And you've seen it for five hours, but you've got no idea. You know, maybe you don't even know it's Nepal, you know, to, to wreck the metaphor even more. But you, you don't you don't even know what the hell it was. Yeah. Whereas with meditation, it's like somebody prepares you and says, OK, you're going to go to Nepal and I'm going to give you a, I'm going to tell you the language that they speak there and the history of the country and what it's like there. And you've got a teacher who works with you and, and trains you about how to how to behave when you're in Nepal and you work with it for years. And then you go to Nepal and you spend like, I don't know, a month there or a year there. Yeah. And then you come home. OK, that would be. You know, that would be the difference. A more complete experience. Yeah. So I guess a question to follow of that, since the states are somewhat similar, <clears throat> if you did a significant amount of like LSD or mushrooms, one of two things would probably happen. You would either, it probably, you'd either need to probably take more every time to be able to reach that state. Yeah. 
or you'd start losing your mind. Yeah, well, that seems to be what happens. And there's a Ram Das talks about this, where he was with him and, and his uh, Timothy Leary and these people. They were trying to see if they could stay high. This is in the 60s when they were trying to do LSD. They were trying to see if they could stay high for extended periods of time. I remember reading, I don't remember which book this is in, but they were talking about just drinking, because you know how much LSD it takes. It's like a drop of LSD. And they were actually drinking it. Yeah, like glasses full of of liquid LSD after a while because it wasn't having any effect anymore. (laughs) You know, because it just just wasn't working anymore. And I, I think that's I think that's where you get if you try to do it with drugs it's just going to get like that you're just going to be gobbling huge amounts and it just doesn't do you need more meditation every time to appreciate the state or is it a state that you can I guess maintain without having to indulge more and it's, it sounds like you can achieve this state for a longer period of time because eventually the drugs will quit working on you and the meditation would still work but do you require more meditation every time to reach said state or can you reach it easier once you meditate well, longer? okay this is what dogan likes to point out and and this is why i like dogan better than anybody else who talks about meditation because his big point is that the ordinary state is the enlightened state. So this even makes him unique among Zen people. Uh, he's not maybe the only one who says this, but but he's one of the few. Because most Zen people do talk about an enlightened state as a, like, here's the enlightened state. You have a Satori or a Kensho, and you have this you know special state of enlightenment. Yeah. What Dogen keeps saying is, no, there isn't this special state of enlightenment. There are special states you can get into. And and he acknowledges that, and he doesn't, he doesn't even denounce them or say they're bad or anything like that. But he says that this ordinary state that you have right now when you're like I was just doing a, a thing where he talks about the 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 ending of the essay is the cook is going into the kitchen. This is the most profound thing, you know. So you, the cook is going into the kitchen. He's trying to describe something as like the most ordinary thing the person can do. Like okay. the cook goes into the kitchen. This is what a cook does. Cook goes into the kitchen. This is the profound state. So he's trying to say the most profound thing you can experience is the most ordinary thing you can experience. So so the idea being that if you if your meditation practice is deep enough you'll you'll start to come to terms with the fact that this special state doesn't matter so so you don't need the special state anymore you realize that when you're sitting there doing the dishes or picking your fingernail or whatever it is that is the fully enlightened state so that is that's another difference so that the special state that you get from drugs or even from a meditation experience doesn't, isn't important anymore. Okay. So you're just like, I guess, perpetually enlightened at that point. So I guess, yeah, my, so I, so here, here's a legitimate question then. Would a Buddha need to meditate? Yeah. I mean, the idea, yeah, if you, if you listen to Dogen, he, he believed that you should continue doing your meditation practice he he didn't think that you did your meditation practice until you had a, an enlightenment experience and then you you drop it. There is there is a kind of a school of thought within certain forms of Buddhism that that 
is what you do. Yeah. You do your meditation experience until you have your your enlightenment, and then you don't need the meditation experience. The, the metaphor is often like a raft that you use to cross the river, and then you don't use the raft anymore. Uh, Dogen, uh, again, he, he talks about you continue your zazen because I, I think his idea is there's always something else. You know, there's there's no ending to the to the depth your enlightenment your enlightenment can get to. So, so that you keep you keep practicing even after. So I guess would Dogen believe that a, that Buddha is an impossible thing then because you never truly reach full enlightenment. Because I thought the concept of a Buddha was just like a fully, like mm-hmm. a truly mm-hmm. fully enlightened being. Dogen says you meditate perpetually because there's always new things to like learn with an enlightenment. Yeah. So does Dogen believe that Buddha isn't actually like impossible <laughs> state to exist? Yeah, I don't. I don't think he would put it that way, but but probably, yeah. I mean, that probably yes would be the answer to your question. But, you know, Buddha, if you're a Buddhist, you have to have that idea of the Buddha being, you know, Buddha. But, yeah, the idea of the the being who's so enlightened he can't get in any more enlightened is probably something that, that Dogen would reject. It's something I would reject. I don't I don't think there is that. I don't think that exists. And I think even Shakyamuni Buddha, the the you know the the Buddha who started it all, wasn't that. I think he's been mythologized into that, you know, and and we like to hold him up as that. But I don't I don't think even he was that. He he probably he was like just a more enlightened being, basically, but not the fully not the not fully enlightened to the point where there's nothing else to be enlightened on. Yeah, I think even he could have gone further, and he probably did go further, you know. What happened to Buddha? Well, he taught, you know, he had his enlightenment experience when he was around 30 years old, they say. And he taught until he was 80. And then he had some kind of an incident, which people have been arguing over ever since, where he was fed some kind of food, which was either pork or mushrooms. And people argue about whether it was pork or mushrooms. He, Buddha was basically a vegetarian, but his rule was that if somebody served you meat and you had no reason to believe that the animals killed specifically for you to eat. You should accept it. So it could have been pork. Anyway, whatever it was, was bad. And he had dysentery, supposedly. I mean, they didn't call it dysentery then. Uh, And he was 80 years old and he died. Um, So... And that was that was the end of his career. But before that, he had already made this guy named Mahakashapa his successor, and Mahakashapa carried on, and then Mahakashapa passed it on to Ananda, and then Ananda passed it on, I forget. And so it got passed on uh, from person to person up until today. That's the mythology. Okay. Yeah. So all of his successors were Buddhas then, I guess, by that same... Yeah, supposedly. And and if you but I mean that's that's mythology because if you believe that then you you have to believe that I'm a Buddha <laughs> because Maybe because you are. Well, I mean but because it was passed on to me the same way through the same form of succession. But then, you know, it was passed on from one person to one person up until some well, legendarily up until Bodhidharma supposedly passed it on to four people and then after that it got passed on to multiple people. But, you know, who knows if that's exactly Spread out indefinitely. Yeah, and so now there's, you know, who knows how many. If you were a Buddha, what would your Buddha name be? 
how does that uh, the naming system in Buddhism work, and what would your name be? I'm kind of curious. Well, you know? I did get a name from my teacher, which is Odo Ben A, which uh, you know that's. But you know, if you're asking like Buddhas, the Buddha supposedly uh, predicted that there would be another Buddha who would come along named Maitreya, which we talked about the other day, and a lot of people have claimed to be Maitreya, like Nichiren, who was um, around 800 years ago in Japan, he claimed to be Maitreya, and then there's another guy up in San Francisco who I heard of a few years ago who claims to be Maitreya. I think he's Taiwanese or something, but there's always people who claim to be Maitreya. Uh, so I don't. So I'm just now. I'm really curious. So what? So what makes Maitreya so much more special than like the guy Buddha picked to be his successor? Yeah. And his successor, like if I guess Buddha predicted that Maitreya was going to be the next Buddha, but it sounds like he passes information on too. So like, is Maitreya just a more awakened Buddha than the earlier Buddha or something? Yeah, I really don't know what the the idea is. the The legend of Maitreya has it that Buddhism would uh, fade away, uh, you know, gradually over the years until it would disappear, and then at that point, once it had disappeared entirely, and I think people are supposed to be in that age, uh, three feet tall, and some, <laughs> there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of mythology around it. There's some of those around, so uh, I never know. Well, but I think mo- I think all people are supposed to be tiny. Okay, is my tray a tiny? Yeah, my tray is probably tiny. I, I don't know. There's there's all kinds of weird things in the Lotus Sutra. There's Buddhas who are supposed to be like as tall as skyscrapers and and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Yeah, there's, you know, it's it's real because I you know I have this fascination with aliens and stuff. There's like in the Lotus Sutra. There's a couple of I, I was I was going to see if I could get on ancient aliens and talk about the Lotus Sutra because there's some stuff in the Lotus Sutra that sounds like it's about aliens. Oh, I want to hear that. I want to I hear your I want to hear your alien your alien Buddhist theory. And yeah. Out of curiosity, does it tie into the theory of gods too? Because I know the ancient alien stuff usually ties into like Indra and all that other stuff. So let's let's hear this. Well, no, I I, I think it's probably see I, I'd have to get I'd have to go study up on the Lotus Sutra to give you the exact uh, you know quote chapter and verse and everything but that but see like the that's interesting and and see i don't want to get too goofy on the podcast but but okay buddhism does include the idea of these other realms you know with beings who live incredibly long lives and things we talked about a few minutes ago so you know if in in contemporary modern scientific parlance, we think it's possible that there are civilizations which could be much older than human civilization. So there could be civilizations out there in the universe where, you know, their equivalent of the year 2023 was a million years ago or even a billion years ago. I mean, it's, it's entirely possible. So a civilization like that, if we human beings encountered it, the beings in that civilization would probably seem pretty godlike. Yeah. You know, they might have all kinds of powers, you know, the same way as if you showed a, a cell phone to a caveman, they'd be like, Ooh, you know, they'd be fat amazed. Yeah. yeah. Or a lighter. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think about, you know, my life, like when I, oh, this is stupid, but when I was like, you know, I used to go around 
uh, to these flea markets and look for VHS tapes of old Jimi Hendrix concerts, right? And go, wow, look, I found the Jimi Hendrix concert. And now I can just go on YouTube and go doot, 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 and find it. And just in case anyone listening and doesn't I feel like understand, a, God. a uh, VHS tape was what <laughs> us older folks used to use for streaming things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you can just look it up. And now I feel like a God. And like, you know, maybe there are, you know, maybe, okay. So anyway, aliens, right? Yeah. So, so Buddhism... If you talk about how different religions would would uh, react to aliens, I think the Buddhists would probably take it in stride. They'd be like, "Oh yeah, we we knew about this." Yeah, you know, they they'd be okay with it. So, um, and in the uh, Lotus Sutra now, like I'm I'm doing this from memory, and it's been a long time since I read any of the Lotus Sutra. In fact, I never read the entire thing cover to cover because <laughs> it's so difficult. But I know that there is one chapter near the end where a, a stupa, which is a stupa is this big uh, bell-shaped thing that they build in India to hold the, the um, relics of a Buddha. It comes down from the sky and lands in front of uh, this multitude of people and out comes this Buddha and says a bunch of stuff. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a... You know, if I if I if I want an ancient aliens, if any ancient aliens producers are listening, if I want an ancient aliens and describe that, I'd be like, could it be that these are aliens? Ancient alien theorists say yes. They always say yes. They ancient always. alien theorists are very they're not gullible, they're just very open minded. Yeah, they, like they, they are open minded. They're very open minded. Okay, and I have another really big question for you about space aliens, Indra, and Buddhism. All right, but before you ask that question, let me remind listeners that if they want to support this podcast, they can go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate to find my Patreon, Patreon and PayPal links to support me. Okay, and where, uh, out of curiosity, is there anywhere they can go to, like, subscribe to a YouTube channel or anything like that as well? Oh, yeah, my YouTube channel is uh, uh, youtube.com slash hardcorezen. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Very cool, and they should definitely subscribe to the podcast, too, because I'm sure you're going to be putting out a lot more of these. Yeah, yeah, I will. Super cool. So, back to the issue of gods, aliens, and Buddha. If aliens can become Buddhists, <laughs> and gods could just be more advanced beings or aliens... Does that mean that a god could become a Buddha? Could become a Buddha then? A, a god alien? A god if Indra's an alien. If Indra, yeah, was, yeah. if Indra was an advanced space alien from another time or dimension or something like that, and aliens can become Buddhas, could a god become? Could a god alien become a Buddha? You know, I think so. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, this is the, this is like just kind of speculative stuff, but I, I think it's it's kind of interesting because I, I had a couple of books when I was really much more into science fiction about religious science fiction, and I was disappointed that nobody'd done that I could find a sort of a Buddhist angle science fiction yeah. story because they would do Christian science fiction stories, and then the dilemma would be like, um, you know, Jesus. Jesus came to save humanity, right? Well, I mean, you being a uh, Jewish half, I don't know how you feel about that. But anyway. So, so, so some people say. So some people say. So some people say. You know, but, but a Christian might have a dilemma over aliens because, uh, you know, Jesus didn't visit 
Mars. Actually, Jesus does visit Mars in a, in a book called Jesus on Mars by Philip Jose Farmer, but that's a whole other story. And I think there's actually something I like that in the Mormon thing, too. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, I think the oh. Holy Spirit actually lives on an outer space planet. So, oh, okay. Well, then yeah. they got that wrapped up. But you, but there is a, you know, that you'd have to have Jesus go there. But to, to a Buddhist, I don't think you could any alien could learn to do their version of, of Zazen, whatever that is, yeah. you know, whatever physical posture works for their particular form. Uh, of, they could meditate, they could, it, they could do their form of enlightenment. Uh, so any, any sort of sentient being could, could learn to do that. Could you pull up that thing again where you had the uh, quote from um, the quote from the Buddhist monk talking to Intra? Uh, which one? Uh, where he's this from the book? Where, yeah, yeah. The Buddhist monk is uh, trying to train Indra in it, and then I think you quit reading the quote right before Buddha answered Indra as well. Correct. Uh, well, doesn't Buddha himself? Doesn't he address? No. Subsequently addresses oh, the, God, the Buddha. Oh, the god Indra subsequently addresses Buddha. World honored one. When God, good sons and good daughters receive and retain, rec, uh, read and recite, think reasonably about and expound to others this profound prajnaparamita, that's meditation practice, that you have preached, how should I guard it? Indra, how should I, Indra, guard it? My only desire, world honored one, is that you will show me compassion and teach me. Oh, but then, even though. Indra addresses the Buddha, it's Subhuti who answers it. The uh-huh. monk Subhuti says to the god Indra, Kausika, which is Indra, uh, do you see something which you must guard or not? The god Indra says, no, virtuous one, I do not see anything here that I must guard. Subhuti says, uh, Kausika, when good sons and good daughters abide in the profound Prajnaparamita thus preach, uh, they are just guarding it. So when they do their meditation, they are actually guarding the, the enlightenment. Uh, when good sons and good daughters abide in the profound Prajnaparamita, as thus preached, they never stray. Remember, even if all human and non-human, okay, those are aliens, uh, beings were looking for an opportunity to harm them, in the end, it would be impossible. Uh, Kausika, that's Indra, if you would want to, uh, sorry, if you want to guard against, sorry, if you want to guard the bodhisattvas who abide in the profound Prajnaparamita, as thus preached, is no different from wanting to guard space. Space. See there, we get yeah, aliens huh? again. So there's is, all kinds of aliens. Is a uh, so he's addressing Buddha and the monks responding, but then he's, resp- he's referring to the monk as virtuous one. So is Indra addressing the monk in that as Buddha? And I guess my second half of that is: is a Buddhist trying to teach enlightenment to a god? Because if so, yeah. I I would feel like in that case, Buddha would believe that a god could achieve enlightenment, right? Yeah, they yeah. Know it, I guess, for a fact. Yeah, yeah. So, so they are they are implying that the the god that Indra can achieve enlightenment because otherwise, why would he be asking about it? I, yeah. So, yeah, I guess aliens could achieve it, and gods could achieve it, and even Ziggy, who's uh, marching around here, I suppose listeners can probably hear that little jangling of his uh, little. What do they call the tags, tags on his collar? Dog tags. Yeah. So even Ziggy could achieve enlightenment, although I don't think he's there just yet. No, but there is there is kind of mythology that says animals under certain conditions can achieve enlightenment, although apparently it's very rare that you supposedly you have to be a human being to achieve enlightenment. So so that I mean that that is it is kind of a weird question and it's speculative and nobody can really answer it. And and you kind of I don't know I sort of 
I don't know how much I, I believe all of this about gods and deities and things. I, I tend to sort of accept the idea that there must be other realms than this. I mean, I, I tend to just believe that lightly, but I don't, you know, I don't sit around obsessing about what goes on there or anything yeah. or worrying about it too much. But I, I tend to think, oh, it's probably true. That makes sense. That's fair. But, you know, whether whether Ziggy can be enlightened or not. I well, he he did he used to meditate with me. Okay. No, I I I, I mean, he's a meditator. He so. used to sit with me, but now he kind of just curls up on the floor. So I guess to the question of whether or not dogs can achieve enlightenment, ancient alien theorists say yes. Yeah. Yeah. And aliens can achieve enlightenment. Everyone can achieve enlightenment. And maybe Jabberjaw. Maybe Jabberjaw. You guys could achieve enlightenment, honestly. <laughs> well, now we have to explain to the listeners what Jab why we we stopped the recording because the the male person uh, came to the door and delivered uh, the complete series of Jabberjaw, which is a 70s cartoon sort of a uh, knockoff of Scooby-Doo, in which the, the Scooby-Doo, instead of being a dog, is a shark. So imagine Jabberjaw. three biggest series at the time when Jabberjaw came out were Scooby-Doo, yeah. Josie and the Pussycats, yeah. and Jaws. So it's like a mixture of Scooby-Doo, Josie and the Pussycats, and Jaws, and how can you go wrong with yeah, that? How can you go wrong with that? And of course, the shark doesn't eat people in this. He plays drums <laughs> and solves mysteries, because why not? Yeah, so, you know. And I think that, whoever, uh, whoever came up with Jabberjaw was probably uh, really... Doing a lot, a lot of uh, ayahuasca to achieve enlightenment. <laughs> there probably was ayahuasca involved. This is what someone's enlightenment looks like right here. Yeah, I wish the, I wish the listeners could see that. If you're if you're listening right now and you can, you should absolutely Google. Yeah, just Jabberjaw. Google Jabberjaw, and then you'll know. You'll understand. Yeah, you'll understand what enlightenment is actually like. <laughs> and you'll decide if you still want to go down that path afterwards. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> I like this plan. This is the I think this is a this is a solid set of instructions for people that are genuinely curious about achieving enlightenment and where it can take them. <laughs> By the way, you yeah. were saying there's not a lot of series out there. Most series have like Christian philosophy instead of Buddhist philosophy. Uh, what do you mean, like a see, like a science fiction? Or? Yeah, like yeah, science yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, man, if you just look into anime stuff, it's That's all true. so heavily Buddhist influenced. That's true. I haven't, I haven't looked at it too much, but a lot of, a lot of Japanese animation does reference old Buddhist stories. I'll, you know, the thing about a lot of Japanese people is they're, the average Japanese person probably knows less or, or, almost as much about Buddhism, less about Buddhism than somebody like me, who's an American who studied Buddhism, you know? But you're an expert. Yeah, yeah. But I I probably, I I actually used to tell my Japanese colleagues at work at Tsuburaya Productions different things about Buddhism and be, like, really surprised that they didn't know, like, basic basic Buddhism stuff, because they just, they, they just don't, they don't, don't get a lot of education about that over there. So they don't, so like when you see something about Buddhism in an anime series, it's, it's, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt, like they might not know exactly. And the funny thing about Tsuburaya Productions, I might've told you this, but I don't know if the listeners at home know this, the company is actually, they were Christians. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Eiji Tsuburaya converted to Christianity late, late in life. Like, I think he was over 40 or something. But he he converted to Christianity, and because other people kind of knew he'd converted to Christianity, um, 
a bunch of people in the company converted to Christianity. So, so I, this makes sense, though, because if yeah. you think about it, so yeah, initially you look at Ultraman, you're like, this guy kind of looks like a Buddha, a little yeah, bit, but. Remember how Ultraman shoots his laser out? Yeah, that makes a Christian cross. Yeah, yeah, it totally no. does. No, that's that's exactly you. You you got that right. The 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 way he crosses, uh, you, you can't see this, but the way Ultraman crosses his arms is based on a Christian cross. You know, yeah. If you want to see this, you could probably Google Ultraman pose. By the way, and I'm guessing you'll find him showing his Christianity to the whole world. Yeah, and he's he's. Uh, there's also an episode of Ultraman Ace in which several of the Ultraman characters are crucified by an evil alien. Oh my god! On on planet Golgotha. Probably not a uh, so, probably not an enlightened alien. Is what I'm no, guessing. No, no, but it's something. It's 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 it was funny to me. This is like, isn't it a children's show? Yeah, and it's a it's something that you never like a, a, an American Christian run children's TV show making company would never have the superhero get crucified. Unless they're Catholic. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then you... I mean, the superhero of Christianity did technically get crucified. So. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, they do have that one already. But in, in Japan, most most Japanese Christians are Catholic, and they will just call themselves Christian, but they're usually Catholic. Uh, in in Korea, I think they're, most Christians are Presbyterian. It's kind of really? funny. Yeah. Is that why... I don't know why. Yeah, I'm curious. The Catholic Church got in there. Yeah, I know when I know when Western culture entered Japan because that was like with Nobunaga Oda and all that, right? Yeah, you're probably better on it, Japanese so. history than me. I do love a little Japanese history, and Nobunaga Oda imported a lot of Western uh, weapons, but as well also like media and cultural influences. And I know priests were coming to Japan when he was the ruler and he would speak to them. So I'm kind of curious if that's how, uh, it could be because Christ- yeah. there was a, there was a Christian persecution in Japan, uh, at one point, but then that, I don't know that ended. I don't know when that ended, but, uh, after a while, Christianity became legal in Japan. So it was okay. But there was, at one point it was illegal to be a Christian in Japan. Barely legal Christianity. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. like an exciting, an exciting take on things. And don't Google barely Christ- legal Christians, by the way. It's probably not what you want to find. And the way they would tell if you were a Christian, they would throw a picture of Jesus on the ground and make you step on it. And if you could, if you could <laughs> oh step on it, they would believe you were not a Christian. But if you refused to step on the picture of Jesus, then they would like cut your head off so, or something. I just gotta say, I just gotta say this. If the Christians had read the old, the, the New Testament, I've read it. I'm not a Christian. I've read the New Testament. If they had read the New Testament, they'd know that Jesus very specifically told them that he they should go ahead and step on that picture and met survival because he yeah. 100% covers that and he's like, oh yeah, break whatever rules you need to as long as you ta- as long as it like constitutes your ability to keep living. Does it say that in the Bible? Yeah, well, remember that's why Jesus is like, it's okay to work on Saturdays. It's oh. okay to if you, if you need to like work to keep your family and yourself alive, mm. it's okay. So by that same set of principles, it'd be like if you if it's about yourself and your family continuing living, step on the picture because it's a it's not the same as like defaming God basically. Yeah, yeah. So I said jokes on everybody that didn't do it, <laughs> who got killed for everyone for not doing like, it. Hopefully, uh, in a Sunboku kind of honorable way though. Yeah, so. maybe. 
Well, good. I think we've talked for an hour. That's probably a good podcast length, right? I, yeah, I think so. I think it was a it was a fun podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank we you. High fived each other for having me on. Actually, you had me technically. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Man, well, well thank you for being here. And remember, I'm Ben Goldman, and you can find my stuff. It's a lot of anime and like sketch comedy and stuff like that. But you can find it at Animal Talk Vegas on TikTok at Animal Talk Vegas on Instagram, YouTube.com/slash Animal Talk Vegas as well. All right, and thank you. And you can uh, donate to support this podcast, as, as I already told you, at, uh, where did I tell you? HardcoreZen.info slash donate. So I appreciate all your donations, and we will see you next time. And remember to subscribe to the podcast, yeah. as well as subscribing to Brad's YouTube channel, which is? Oh, yeah, YouTube.com slash HardcoreZen. So youtube.com slash hardcore zen. That's it. And read his books if you haven't read them all yet. They're all amazing. (laughs) Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Bye. Adios.